Hello and welcome to Liver Talk, a podcast series from Liverwell that shares personal and professional stories about hepatitis and liver-related news. Before we commence, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening. We pay our respect to the elders, past, present and emerging, and to any Indigenous people who are listening to this podcast. Chloe Headley, together with Paulette Trevina from Liverwell, and we are speaking with Associate Professor Christy Newman from the University of New South Wales, Sydney, about her research into bloodborne viruses and serodiscordant families. Christy is also the Associate Dean Engagement, Impact and Enterprise at the University of New South Wales. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much. Firstly, for listeners who are not familiar with bloodborne viruses and the meeting of serodiscordant families, could you please explain those terms a little for us? Yes. So, so bloodborne viruses is the category or the term that we use to describe three viruses in particular, HIV, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. The other category that we use in the areas that I work is sexually transmissible infections. And some sometimes bloodborne viruses are also sexually transmissible. So HIV in particular fits both of those categories. But bloodborne is the is the category that gets used internationally for, for those three. And I guess one of the things that links all three of those are different forms of social stigma that get associated with the transmission practices associated with those particular viruses, but also ideas around living with with those viruses, including options for treatment and care. So that's one of the things that that is important to, to bring into this discussion today. And the term serodiscordance is another term which comes from the literature, from the from the health literature mainly. And it It's mainly been used in the context of HIV to describe a relationship between two people with different viral statuses. So one person who was living with a virus and another person who was not. And usually it gets used in relation to people in intimate partnerships or relationships, uh, particularly sexual relationships, where there is considered to be a risk of transmission. Uh, So it's mainly been used in the HIV literature, as I said, to think about serodiscordant couples as a a site for potential risk. It's been used much less in relation to those other bloodborne viruses, much less, uh, some in, in hepatitis C, almost not at all in hepatitis B. And the other thing that we uh, know is that historically there's been uh, this focus on on couples, on intimate relationships, rather than other forms of social relationship. So one of the things that we wanted to do in this study, which was called My Health, Our Family, was to think about serodiscordance in a slightly more expansive way, to think about how does, how does serodiscordance work, what does it mean um, in family relationships and across those different bloodborne virus experiences. Right. So um, can you tell us what inspired your research in this field? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I guess I work in a research centre, the Centre for Social Research in Health, which has been around for 30 years now. We've been funded, uh, we originally funded out of the government response to HIV. We started in, in 1991 and the Kirby Institute is another one that's founded around the same time and another couple of centres as well, Arches in Melbourne and the, the Virology Centre. 
And we all do different things. Our social research centre was always interested, as you can probably imagine, in the social dynamics, social relationships that factor in and are essential to understanding and responding effectively to prevent the transmission of bloodborne viruses in particular. HIV is where the money came from originally, and but pretty quickly and always we were working across other areas as well, particularly viral hepatitis, and thinking about other health um, issues that affected the communities most at risk of HIV in Australia. And in Australia, that was, and it continues to be mostly gay, identified men who have sex with men, but other communities also, always Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, people who inject drugs, sex workers, and a range of other, of, of other communities affected. Uh, we've also, I should say, What's important to say there is we've always worked in partnership with community and in partnership with government and with uh, clinicians as well and, and, other, and other groups, but our partnerships with community is and always has been essential to the work that we do. And we've done a variety of projects over the years on, on couples, on serodiscordance in couples in particular, and as there were new innovations developed in HIV in particular, which really has, has gone through significant change over the years. But I'm thinking in particular about treatment as prevention when it became evident that HIV treatments could prevent the transmission of HIV as well as treat it. And then the introduction of PrEP, there was an increasing attention to what those would mean for the way that social relationships were conducted among people with HIV, social and sexual relationships. And then innovations in the hepatitis space included the introduction of DAAs, effective cure for hep C. And I guess what we realised was, and in talking to the community partner organisations that we work with, there really wasn't much attention being paid to what these innovations were going to mean for other social relationships, particularly the families that are affected by and always have been involved in the response to bloodborne viruses in Australia. And we work alongside another centre called the Social Policy Research Centre, and their expertise is families families and carer relationships in particular. So we had a chat to some colleagues there who worked very close by us and they were really interested in partnering on this project. So we brought together two different sets of expertise, our expertise in the social aspects of bloodborne viruses and theirs in family and care relationships and that's what made this happen. But as I said, it wouldn't have happened without our partner organisations being right on board and saying, yes, we need something that is documenting the experiences of families and helping us understand what their needs are so that everybody can do well and benefit from these innovations in the in the clinical and epi, epidemiological prevention space. So could you tell me what your key findings were about the experiences of families in Australia affected by bloodborne viruses? It's a hard question to answer that one. So I'll just say something first about the project. Um, we were very lucky to be funded by the Australian Government, um, the um, Australian Research Council, but with a discovery project. And the wonderful thing about a discovery project is, you can probably tell from the name, it can be really exploratory. We don't have to sort of, we needed to be quite ambitious in what we wanted to achieve. And I'm a qualitative researcher, which means I'm all about capturing people's stories. Um, I'm not a numbers researcher, so I'd like to go in depth into people's experiences. And so really what we wanted to do was um, capture the stories of as diverse a range of families as we could find. Um, we were focused in New South Wales, partly because we were already 
doing something quite complicated, which was to look across three different bloodborne virus areas and to try to look across different families. And, and nobody had really done this before. And we thought, let's not try to do the whole of Australia to begin with. But luckily, when the word spread, people started contacting us from other states. So we did have a bit of a spread. We interviewed 61 people who either had their own experience of a diagnosis of one or more of those bloodborne viruses, or they're a family member of somebody affected. We also interviewed 20 or 21, 20, I think, um, stakeholders working in bloodborne viruses, care, family, policy, and other clinical aspects of, of this topic area. So what we had was a huge amount of data, qualitative data, stories of all kinds, and an incredible diversity in the, the kinds of stories that people were telling us. The ages, you know, ranged from, I think it was 15 to 89. We had all genders, all sexualities, incredible cultural diversity as well, and a lot of difference in terms of how recently people had been diagnosed as well. So we got to have a little bit of that sense of different different experiences over time um, so in all of that I would say it's quite we, we've we've got it we've published a report which is available freely online and which will capture some of the key themes but we've also got a whole range of papers that are going sort of more in depth I would say that there's really useful stories and insights there about how disclosure is managed in particular among families so that means how families responded to a disclosure but also, what families do with that information afterwards, like who they will talk to, what the kind of agreements are within families about who gets to hold that information, how they manage it, what that story means about the family and, and that sort of thing. And we heard a, a real range there. We had we heard stories of families that were, were really profoundly affected, a lot of shock, some blame and rejection. But we also heard incredible stories of families who were really rallying around to provide support of in emotional forms, in practical, financial, um, all kinds of, of different forms. And that was really wonderful. A whole lot of stuff that we heard as well about what that support, what support people wanted, because that you just kind of can't assume it's always going to look like the same thing. And also some really interesting um, insights into the idea of risk, transmission risk in families. So one thing I'd say there, shall I go into a bit more depth about one of those those findings? Sure. What do you think? Yeah? Really? Yeah, great. So, what, so I guess uh, risk often uh, gets thought about as um, – a kind of a well, it is. It either is risk or it's not risk, if you know what I mean. So in an in in serious in literature on serious discordance in the past, it's like the success in a relationship is if the bloodborne virus does not get transmitted within the couple. And of course, what we know is that relationships are much more complicated than that, and they become all tangled up in feel feelings and and love and loyalty. And so I guess what we saw was a whole range of ways in which families also take on ideas about risk and make it far more complex more complex than you might think so yes there were some families who really um a few families who didn't who were fearful who were fearful of the, of the virus they were they had old ideas about contagion about the risk of transmission within households about sharing cutlery and those kinds of old ideas um, and so so that was very difficult for the families that we talked to who had experienced that. But we'd say that 
actually more common in this study at least were accounts of families changing the idea of where the risk sat. So rather than the risk actually being about somebody within my family has a bloodborne virus and I'm at risk or this other person's at risk and we need to prevent that, actually the risk became often a risk to how well the family could work together to support each other. So social stigma became the threat to the family. And many families' response to that was they really bonded to think through how can we, how can we look after each other through this and in response to this new risk. And it's kind of a, it's just a really, I find that a really profound way to rethink what risk and bloodborne virus means when you think about it in the context of family relationships. And I will, I should just really clarify, we didn't define family. People define that for themselves. We didn't have any expectation that that needed to be defined along biology or, you know, family of origin or, or even particular kinds of family relationships within those um those uh, kind of narratives. Uh, and so indeed, people were very diverse in the definitions of who counted as family for them. But we will say that mostly, even among people who really, you know, defined uh, key partners and friends and colleagues and neighbours and even uh, beloved animals as part of their families, the stories often fell back in thinking about family of origin and biological relationships and kind of speaks to how powerful those relationships remain socially for us, despite all of the changes that we've seen in the way that family gets um, valued um, today. That sounds really interesting. So following on from that research, what would you like to see investigated further? Oh, there's always so many things that we haven't, you know, had a chance to do or or to or that that could be done in different ways. I suppose I'd love to see more research which is looking at how services might be able to differently engage beyond the affected individual. And I think it's really complicated in the bloodborne virus area because confidentiality is really, really fundamentally important. So and also resources are limited. And so the primary focus has to be the affected individual. But we also know there can be missed opportunities there because no individual it kind of, you know, lives in isolation. They are, The way that they act on information, the way that they engage with services, the way that they make sense of things always happens relationally. And so I think there's lots of opportunities to think about how might we be designing our services and our programs and our campaigns differently to better recognise that. I think there's also a huge amount that needs to be done uh, in the hepatitis B space. And we know that uh, across the board, there's less that's been research, there's less that's been documented in relation to the social dimensions of Hep B. There's some amazing people doing that work, but more resources and more attention would be really valued because hepatitis B does work differently in lots of ways from Hep C and, um, and HIV, and it has a different history in terms of how it's been understood in the community. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think we knew in this study that we didn't have the opportunity to really go in depth on any one area because we were trying to look across and to think about what sorts of things might be shared. And so I think that the opportunities there are are really in focusing in 
on specific areas. I actually think there's some interesting stuff to do as well on on ideas around our parenting and reproduction that I think we got a little bit of insight into, but there's lots more happening in that space, I think, in the next few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you report those findings back to families so that, you know, other families can benefit from that research? Yeah, so I think, you know, in a lot of academic research, you're, I mean, certainly as academics, we are we are required to publish in the peer-reviewed literature, the scientific literature, and unfortunately, a lot of that literature is not accessible to people if they don't have access to the subscriptions for journals. And so we always write at least one kind of report that's freely available and I think that's really important as a as a way to document and really kind of provide something substantial that's open openly available so that's probably our main thing and we've we've fed back the um, information on that to all of our participants and we work with our, with the community organizations they're kind of key and and clinical organizations as well um, to to make sure that the understanding is there about what we found in this study and to open up the opportunity for us to continue to work together on 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 specific kinds of um, outcomes that might be of relevance to those organizations we're always keen to hear from people as well if there's particular things that they're interested in and we've still got a whole range of as i've said papers that we're hoping to write on specific topic areas i'm going to write i'm trying to write one at the moment about um about the families for whom the bloodborne virus was a, was a quite a carefully guarded secret. They, those families were quite different from the families that were much more open about it. And I think there's some interesting things to look at about how those families worked and why, what was sort of at stake for them and how they managed those things. And, and it wasn't always a, a kind of a, a negative thing. It was also a very protective and care-based approach and I think in, we live in an era where we really value the idea of openness and transparency and honesty. We also have to recognise that we, we can't bring that as an assumed good in all, in all cases. So that, that's a paper in particular that I want to write. And we've got a, we've got, I think we've got another 10 that we want to do. We're always happy to send people papers, by the way. Um, yeah. Please just always email academics because we love getting those requests. <laughs> And just finally, what would you say is the takeaway message? I think the takeaway from this study, although as I've said, it's tricky to narrow it down, is really recognising bloodborne viruses are described by many people who are affected beyond the individual as a family affair, as something that was really a shared concern And I think we can take heart from that because it means that people who are directly affected, it's not just up to them to kind of manage things themselves. They are embedded within social networks. We also know that families, of course, are not positive structures or or, or relationships for everybody. They, They can be sites of incredible hurt and harm. So we're not being naive here about about families always being a good thing but what we don't want to do is assume that families are going to are going to reject that are going to be unable to understand you know we heard story after story of people who had no connection with bloodborne viruses before a loved one was diagnosed diving in and learning what they needed to learn and then taking that on and becoming educators in their own communities and I think that's just incredibly inspiring. It sure is.
Yeah, yeah definitely. Oh, well, thanks, Christy. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating to hear about your research. Thanks so much. Would just love the opportunity to talk about this study. So um, as I've said, if anyone's interested, please contact us and we can always send um, copies of reports and papers. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Liver Talk. For information, visit our website at liverwell.org.au or call the Liver Line on 1800 703 003.